0: sports, music, the changing physical landscape of Seattle. As we gear up for season four of Seattle Growth Podcast, this episode has it all as we revisit an evolving story that has potential to touch the lives of every single Seattle resident and worker. I'm Jeff Shulman, and the upcoming season of Seattle Growth Podcast will explore the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. Previously, Seasons of Seattle Growth podcast examined the physical transformation of Seattle and what a return of the Sonics would mean for life in this city. And now, as the process to bring a sports and entertainment complex to the city has more twists and turns than a Christopher Nolan movie, the latest developments have potential to impact music lovers, musicians, taxpayers, sports fans, and more. Recently, a group led by Chris Hansen which is seeking to build a privately financed arena in the Soto neighborhood, added yet another offer to their proposal. They're offering to renovate the city-owned Key Arena in Seattle Center into an indoor and outdoor music venue. In return, they are asking for a street vacation, which means they would like to purchase city land. Meanwhile, the City Council's Select Committee on Civic Arenas voted unanimously on November 16th to bring a Memorandum of Understanding with the Oakview Group to a full City Council vote. The Oakview Group plans to invest over half a billion dollars into renovating the Seattle Center Arena, known as Key Arena, into a world-class sports and entertainment complex. So what are the latest details of Chris Hansen's proposal to privately finance a Soto Arena and to privately finance a renovation of Key Arena into two music venues? And how does the City Council Committee's vote affect that group's thinking? Stay tuned as Wally Walker and Pete Nordstrom describe their plan and the impact they anticipate it will have on you and life in this city. These two guests on today's episode were previously part of the NBA Supersonics ownership group and are now part of Chris Hansen's group. And as an aside, one of them plays bass on the song at the start of this episode. Keep listening to find out who. Now, join me as I sit down with Wally Walker. I am here with Wally Walker a NBA champion as a player with the Seattle Supersonics, a Seattle Supersonics team executive, a former owner of the Seattle Supersonics, a person who is now trying to bring the Sonics back to an arena in Soto, and a two-time guest on Seattle Growth Podcast. Uh, so Wally, thank you for joining me today. Great to be here again. Uh, so why don't you start, tell me what's happened? What, what's the latest details of your proposal since we met back uh, last year?
1: The Soto Arena Group is proposing, as we always have, to put a, a facility with a sports-first facility in the best possible location for a sports facility in the Soto area where the two stadia already are. We already have the great uh, parking and traffic infrastructure. It's unmatched, maybe in the country. So why wouldn't we want to have our arena there as well? So you start with the best location, and then you start with then you go to the deal for the community. What we're proposing is a privately financed deal that not only does the public pay nothing and have no financial risk, the taxpayers are huge beneficiaries because all the tax revenue generated from the building goes right into the city, county, and state coffers. And it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars incremental to what could happen at, at, at Key Arena to the benefit of the taxpayers. A lot has happened. At least there's been a lot of rhetoric about what has happened. Uh, I would say I'm not sure how far the ball has been advanced. Most of the discussion, of course, of late, and this is because it's a city-driven process, has had more to do with the Key Arena proposal, but then a couple of months ago, we also put forth our own Key Arena proposal related to it being a concert venue, which we think is a perfect outcome both for the city and for the music community and for sports fans. Because going back, we talked about this and that this part has not changed. Getting 18,000 people in and out of Seattle Center at Key Arena in the same half hour window before and after game is not going to work.
0: So for somebody who's new to this process, what exactly are you offering to do and what is the timeline of when that would happen, and what do you need?
1: Well, what we proposed on the concert venue at Seattle Center for the existing Key Arena site is more, right now, concept and proposal. We just want to put it out there to get a part of the discussion because we kept hearing, oh, if there's a Soto Arena, then the Seattle Center and the, the, the Key Arena is going to be a white elephant. And we thought, well, listen, we care about Seattle Center too. I, I tried to calculate and how many times I've been to that site of Key Arena, and I stopped at 1,000. I've been on that site over 1,000 times. So I love Seattle Center. That site has a lot of value, but it's just not as a pro sports facility. It's just very challenged to, to do it correctly there. So to come up with an alternative, which is a concert venue, we heard from a lot of people in the mu- music community that the void in this area, this community for a, a size, is something to six to 7000 seat arena. So we had uh, arena architects, uh, world-renowned uh, HOK, kind of, hey, here's... The Blank Slate, you know the project because they uh, worked on the their remodel, redesign uh, a dozen years ago. Try to come up with a concept that would be good for the community, that might serve a purpose, and see what you come up with. So they came up with this great design for two different concert venues. One to seat 6,000 seats or 6,200 people inside, and on the other side, facing the International Fountain, an amphitheater seating 3,000 would open to the outside during the summer and just have the flow of people and could use that facility 100 times a night. We keep the Seattle Center vibrant, which is important to to everybody, including us. The
0: city has seemed to have made progress with the Oakview Group since we last spoke. So they put out a bid for proposals, and they're now putting an agreement forth to the council to consider In that process since we've last met in the last year, what kind of investments has your group continued to make uh, in the hopes to build an arena in SOTA? Well,
1: let's go back to uh, a little bit on the history because I I think it's germane to that investment discussion because there's been a lot of talk about what somebody else is going to invest in theory. Uh, And granted, they're big numbers, but people need to be reminded, I think, so I'm doing it. We've already put $130 million into that site. We bought all the real estate, 13 acres, that will accommodate and make for this great fan experience. Not just an arena, but uh, a, a great place to park close by, and so the fans have a very pleasant a- a experience. So $130 million has already been expended to, for the best possible arena site. Then on top of that, o- over the years, we ha- spend uh, multiple millions of dollars every year just to keep advancing the, the project. Uh, that's, that's lawyers and consultants and, and other people architects. Uh, so we keep investing and no one should feel sorry for us. I know they don't anyway, because we we bought this real estate. It's great real estate. It, it generates cash. And so uh, we're fine, but we're doing it not because we're trying to maximize profits. If we were trying to do that, we'd already be talking to developers who call us every month. We want an arena. And we think particularly if we're going to attract an NBA team here, let's put it at the best possible site for the fan experience. Cause then the, the fans will come. They're going to come anyway, initially But over time, you've got to have the right site for the fan experience, and then you've got to be able to for the teams to maximize their economics in a way that they can compete well. That was a problem with the Key Arena deal before with the Sonics. I know I lived that, and we we don't want to be in that position again. Let's put an arena at the best site, provide the best deal for the team so that we can attract that team or teams.
0: And as the city continues to make progress towards an agreement with the Oakview Group for a Key Arena remodel, why are you continuing to pursue this project?
1: Well, because we have the best solution. Oh, listen, Seattle Center as a concert venue site is great. Oak View, so if they want to do a concert venue there, that, that's great too. But why don't we do two buildings? If, if they want to do that and the city needs another building or, or wants a viable building for Seattle Center, great. Whether it's us uh, putting the money in or Oak View, we don't care at all. We don't care if there's competition at another arena for for concerts. Uh, we'd be okay if there's a hockey team there. I think it makes sense to have both sports facilities both in, or both sports teams in the same facility. But what the model is going to now nationally is more one-team uh, arenas. That's what's happening in L.A. now. It's happening in Phoenix and Minneapolis-St. Paul. You can go down a long list. So if we're going to do an NBA-only building with a little bit of music that's great with us. We think that building works, and it, and it, it gives us the best chance to track the NBA. So maybe the, the short answer to your question is, we're still in this. We're still doing it because we have the best solution. And if your goal is to try, try to track the NBA back here, in the words of my friend Steve Ballmer, you want to track the NBA back here? Build a building for the NBA. That's what we're doing.
0: Previous guests on Seattle Growth Podcast said in particular that Seattle's not big enough to handle two major arenas. What are you seeing in the economics that makes it viable?
1: The economics have changed a lot in in the last uh, couple of decades, and particularly the the last decade. Now you've got the Golden State Warriors spending uh, over a billion dollars for a a basketball-only facility. Of course, they'll have other events there and music, but that's a one-team facility. In in LA, you have got multiple arenas, yet uh, teams are looking for a a, a single-team facility with some other events, of course. You already have it, as I mentioned, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in Phoenix. You can go down a long list, and that's more the trend because teams to succeed, they want to control their own revenue streams, they want to control their dates, and now the economics are such that they can do that without having, the building can can flourish without having two major pro sports teams there. And we'd like to have the Storm back with us, too. That's the legacy of the Storm. I was there when we attracted the Storm here to Seattle as an expansion franchise, and To have the storm there in in the summer in in a basketball-first building uh, makes a ton of sense.
0: So headline acts like Beyonce or Taylor Swift are probably not going to play at both Key Arena and a a Soto Arena. So inevitably, there would be some competition that could affect your bottom line. What do you see in terms of the competition for acts between two arenas?
1: You know who benefits? Music fans. Uh, We're not the ones that are opposed to that. We say, bring it on. We'll, we'll, We'll book our building. If there are two buildings, you book your building. That's fine. Let's talk about
0: your idea for reimagining Key Arena. What do you find most exciting about the proposal that your architects put together? Which
1: well, just makes sense. You have a, a, a venue there at Key Arena, probably called something else, but we'll call it Key Arena, where indoors you could do 100 concerts a night at, at the six to 7,000-seat uh, seating capacity where it would be a great experience. People wouldn't get stuck in traffic too long. What we've learned from Storm Games and other concerts, you always get stuck there some, but it's not 18,000 people trying to get in there in the same period of time. So it could be a good uh, concert-goer experience. The, we're talking to a lot of musicians and people in the music business. They are wildly enthusiastic about the idea. They know the legacy of uh, the old Seattle Center Coliseum. then A new building is required, but if you do a music-only uh, building at, at that 6200 level, you can have this great and, and fulsome concert venue that people are, are attending often you get the vibrancy of the Seattle Center. And then in the summer, when we want to be outside anyway, the 3,000-seat amphitheater opened up to the International Fountain creates just a great vibe. And people that see that and see the drawings and think about it say, well, that would be a wonderful place to, to be. And then you add the other events that already happen at Seattle Center, and I, I've seen them a thousand times there, uh, like like Bumbershoot, where it fits things that are already d- doing there from a music perspective. And so where would the money come from to complete
0: two rather expensive major projects in the city.
1: Well, again, we put $130 million already in. That uh, real estate has appreciated quite a bit. Uh, I'm not sure what the number is, but it, it's it's higher, maybe significantly higher. So you already have a fair amount of equity in the ground, which is collateral, which you can borrow against. But to buy a team or teams, you need other investors. We're having those conversations. The The impediment right now, and it's, it's an easy ask, we need to have a street vacated. If Occidental Street gets vacated, the, the prospective owners we're talking to in, for both the NHL and NBA say, we've been following Seattle. We kind of don't want to go through what you guys and others have gone through on the politics of the arena. But if that street gets vacated, you know, let's talk. Because then when there's a clear pathway to getting an arena built at, at, and people that have studied it know that's the best location for, uh, for an arena.
0: From a small concert venue, can Key Arena itself be profitable or would you be subsidizing that project from what happens in Soda?
1: No, if if we end up being the investors, developers of both, then you'd have a great situation in that you could book a lot of acts. I think people tell me, now I'm not a music promoter, but people who are in a business say, no, at 6,000 seats, uh, you could do 100 concerts a year there. And the numbers work for that. Because the the remodel of Key Arena into what we're proposing isn't nearly as expensive. Uh, and you already have, you know, the, the parking that's there. And by the way, the parking and the revenue that gets generated from our proposal, all that money goes to the city. The the MOU with Oakview says all that money goes to Oakview. The emissions tax, that money would go to the, the city and the arts in our proposal. And the MOU, that money goes to Oakview. So we're proposing something where the city would benefit, not just by having a, you know, a vibrant Seattle Center, but also they would get a lot of tax revenue uh, and parking revenue that they won't get under the proposed MOU.
0: You're proposing to potentially build two major projects here in Seattle. This doesn't just affect basketball fans. We also have hockey fans, music fans, and just the people who live and work in the city. Walk me through each of those people. What do you envision happening if the street gets vacated that affects basketball fans, hockey fans, and music fans? Yeah,
1: let's start with the hockey fans. Because I think there's been some misinterpretation that somehow Soto is bad for for hockey fans. It's the opposite of that. And I know this from meeting with the NHL commissioner a couple of times. If we get the street vacated and an NHL team becomes available, whether it be expansion or otherwise, and they have a few teams that may be able or or ready and willing to, to move, they can play in Key Arena starting next year. With the street vacation, we can get ready to play hockey in Seattle next season. I'm talking about 2018 because they can play temporarily in Key Arena while well, Soto gets built. So if you want to get hockey here as quickly as possible, vacate the street, let's talk to the NHL, let's, let's get an owner that knows that that's the best possible site, and we'll, they can, we can bring a team here. The NHL is not going to come here just to play in Key Arena, uh, as it's currently constructed, but if they know there's a runway to a new building. So for hockey, it's the quickest possible way to get a team here. For the music fans, again, you'd have a, a building that could, handle the, the big concerts, or which are the only handful a year, where you need fifteen to 20,000 seats indoors. Then, for the, the preponderance of other concerts, the 6,000, 7,000 seat, they would be playing at the, at the music-only venue. But then you'd have a facility that's built for sports to house your sports uh, teams. Hockey coming first, and then the NBA. The facility for the NBA would be as good as there is in the country. Uh, in our design, there's a prax facility. There's an NBA practice facility right in the building. That's a big deal for an owner. If you have to go out and build your own, which you'd have to if you think about playing a key arena, that is a crazy big expenditure for an NBA owner. They care about that. Because once they invest that money on the team, they're going to conclude, if they haven't already, that's just the cost they I got to pay for the team. Now, how, how else can I generate the most revenue to support that big expenditure for buying a team? And do I have all these other incremental costs? Well, if you're going to spend 50 70, you know, 100000000 million on a practice facility on a separate site, real estate's not cheap here. you got to get security. They care about that. That's an impediment to getting an NBA team. We want to remove all the impediments, and Soto does that.
0: I asked my Twitter followers if they had a question for you, and one question that, that came up is your path forward. Is it going to continue to be kind of a slow and steady wins the race? Or is there going to be a big surprise announcement coming up soon that shakes this situation up?
1: I'd like a surprise announcement. I don't know what the surprise is right now. I guess it would be the right owner. Uh, We'd be happy with that. But we have a bit of a chicken or egg on the street vacation. So the slow and steady part, actually, I'd be okay with a surprise here because the surprise, I think, would be positive, uh, is getting the street vacation done. There's no financial risk to the city it helps them with their negotiation with OBG actually to have a competitor uh, out there that's at least uh, keeping the negotiations uh, on, a, on a good path for the city. So let's get that done. If, if that was quick, that would be surprising, and but but good. Good, good for the taxpayers, uh, good for the sports fans, good for the music lovers. So you know, what are we waiting for? I watched the mayoral debate, and they're talking about the challenges that we have here in Seattle, and, and we have them. And the homeless and, and housing are, are two major ones that keep coming. So I'm sitting there thinking— wait a minute, we have a project that's going to generate hundreds of millions of tax revenue for you, the mayor, and for the city, versus another project which you're considering that's going to be subsidized by hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe upwards towards a billion dollars over the term of the lease. And we're having this debate? It's it's mind-boggling.
0: Does that mean that we can expect that a hockey owner can only emerge after a street vacation? Or might you come up with a, a hockey owner before?
1: It's certainly possible. We've had a number of conversations that a hockey owner could emerge. So I'm not ruling it out by any means. Uh, I would say it's a a much more clear path if uh, the prospective owner knows a street vacation uh, has happened and a shovel can get put in the ground and they can play, you know, very quickly here in Seattle.
0: And so what are the next steps for your group?
1: Well, we're just going to keep telling our story. And I just said the other day, I can't believe we're having to sell this. I'm not sure that's the right verb, but I think it probably is, because we're both selling the merits of the Soto Arena, which should sell themselves. But given this whole media blitz, uh, you know, from not just the city, but from Oakview and from the port, who's involved in promoting the Key Arena deal, we need to keep letting people know that you haven't. Alternative here, which the sports fans I think generally know and agree it's the best site for them, but they may not know that if Key Arena gets done instead, you're going to forgo a couple hundred million dollars going to the Washington State Public Schools because we pay property tax. We're going to pay over the term of at least three to four hundred million in property tax, over half of which goes to our Washington State Public Schools. Really, we're going to forgo that. We got to keep telling the story. So I guess that's the simplest answer to your question.
0: People who are new to this whole thing. What do you want from them, and why should they do that?
1: We're coming at this with a primary goal. That is to attract the NBA and the Sonics back to Seattle. To do that, when you start with that premise, you start with the best site for the team and for, the, for its fans. That is Soto, period. To get that accomplished, and we'd, we'd welcome hockey there too. It'll be a great facility for both. Great experience for the fans. To, to accomplish that, the street has to get vacated. Occidental Street, the one block, which we'll pay for, uh, uh, princely sum by the way, it's been negotiated, and that's fine. That's the cost of doing business. The city can use that however they want. Vacate the street. Let's get moving on Soto, and let's figure out a way, and it can include Oakview uh, with their music expertise. Seattle Center would be a great music destination and a potential great music venue. So why are we putting uh, round pegs in square holes or... The opposite, whichever it is, you know what I mean. Let's do the concert venue, the music venue where it belongs at Seattle Center. Let's do the sports venue where it belongs and why we got into this. And let's get the Sonics back here. That's, that's why we're here.
0: Your group had an, a memorandum of understanding that you signed and got agreed with Mayor McGinn back in 2012 and it expires December 4th. What happens December 4th and what what's the importance of the expiration of your previous agreement?
1: It, it means nothing. It's an artificial deadline our MOU expires, it's five years old, but what we propose since that MOU was negotiated is completely different. It, our deal is now totally privately financed. Uh, we, we've added now at least a, an option uh, for something else at Key Arena, things we can all do under our MOU. Uh, we can, we're just improving it for the city and, and, and its taxpayers and for the sports fans, but we're not changing our, or pulling our, our proposal off the table on December 4th. And for the city to rush a decision about what they're going to do when it's a generational-type decision, I mean, the the arena decision or decisions, if it's multiple uh, venues, it's going to be a 50-year decision. And for us to try to rush it through with a very complex MOU, which either most people haven't read or if they have are confused by it, it, it's just a a crazy uh, false deadline. Any concluding thoughts? Just this. We're a a group of local guys that – are trying to get something done here. And again, we start from the same place. How do we get the Sonics back here? It's building an MBA-first building. It's doing it privately, so we don't have that impediment with some taxpayers, and we respect that. That why should there be any public subsidy of, of this building, and there shouldn't be. So we gave up on that, and we're moving forward with a privately financed building. But if you're gonna attract an NBA team here, you build a building for an MBA team, and they're gonna come. It won't be as soon as we like, but it'll be a lot sooner than if we're doing it otherwise, if we're doing a concert first or another sport first. And let's put it in the best location. Once you get to, Everyone's going to be euphoric when we get the, the, the teams here. Great. That, that's great for everybody. But then you got to give the teams the best chance to succeed. They have to have a model that works. The Sonics in the other key arena remodel did not have that model. Yet we're looking at, at bringing back some of the same elements, having a third-party operator taking a chunk of the revenue, which OBG would do. Back in the Sonics day beforehand, it it was the city of Seattle taking a chunk of the revenue. It makes the teams less competitive. In the case of the NBA, it's going to be an impediment to attracting them.
0: Ollie, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I appreciate the chance to meet with you yet again. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, as always. For additional perspective on the proposed renovation of Key Arena into an indoor and outdoor music venue, join me as I sit down with Pete Nordstrom and singer-songwriter Ben London. I am here with Pete Nordstrom, the co-president of the retailer that bears his family name. Pete, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So my listeners know that you were a part owner of the Seattle Supersonics and that you are now part of a group trying to bring them back to a Soto Arena. What they may not know is that uh, you've got some musical endeavors. Do you mind telling me a little bit about your band?
2: Oh, geez. Okay. Um, Well, I've been involved in music since I was young and probably like a lot of guys in their teenage years was in terrible bands along the way. And, uh, uh, for me, it's something that I always enjoyed and just kind of stuck with. And so while playing basketball and stuff like that gets increasingly difficult, the older you get, you can still, turns out you can still play the guitar or create music in good ways still as you get uh, older. So it's uh, it's been great for me to be able to, to pursue that as a, an interest. And, in, in, you know, I've got some really great friends that I'm able to do it with and it's, it's all good. A lot of fun.
0: And so what kind of music are you playing and what instrument do you play?
2: Well, the band that I'm in currently is called Stag, and we've been together for about seven, eight years now. And um, I don't know, like, we get asked it all the time. It's, it's just a rock band, I suppose. Um, you know, we've got records out there. If you go to iTunes, there's a lot of different songs that we're on. You know, on YouTube, there's videos and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really a lot of fun. We mostly play around here, but we've played South by Southwest in Austin a couple of times. We actually. Uh, we're just in Europe. We played a show in Dublin and a show in London. We recorded a record in New York. You know, we we've, we've used it as kind of a vehicle for boondoggle good times you know but it's uh, it's all been really fun. And I think the fact that people are interested in it and uh, we're able to play good shows and, and people seem to enjoy it just kind of like frosting on the cake. What's your role in the band? What instrument did you I'm the nondescript guy in the back playing the bass.
0: And one of your band members is here today. We've got Ben London, a singer, songwriter, and uh, businessman, I believe. Uh, sure. Man of many hats.
3: Uh, ben, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me here. Why don't you start by just telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been actively involved in the Seattle music community since I arrived on the, on the wonderful shores of Seattle, Washington in 1989. Uh, I was lucky enough to make records and tour... Uh, through most of the 90s as part of the sort of whole grunge thing um, I, I like to jokingly say that my band at the time is a footnote of flannel in that we were there we, we rubbed shoulders, we did all the things that the other bands did except we did not sell millions of records the way that, that others did but got to experience a lot of stuff and then from there transitioned, worked at a record label for a little while but then was lucky enough to get involved on the development team for Experience Music Project and then from there was an executive with the Grammys for about seven years and done business development for technology companies and then the last bunch of years was a partner in a marketing company here in Seattle.
0: And so how and why did you include a business executive here in your band stag? Yeah,
2: that's a great question.
3: That is a great question. Um it primarily had to do with the 15% discount at Nordstrom. <laughs> No, um, Pete. It's been somebody that uh, a couple of us in the band had gotten to know personally over the years, and uh, Rob Dent, who's the drummer, who I've been playing music with for quite a long time. We decided to kind of reformulate things, and along the, in doing that, um, we invited Pete, or I should say that Pete made it known that he would like to participate. And uh, the great surprise was that there are many people, there are some people, or many people in Pete's position that would say, I, I'd love to be in your band, I can play bass. And then he showed up and he actually could play bass and was a good person to be in the band. So it was not a, this wasn't a vanity project for Pete. And then Pete has always been a serious music fan and, you know, has been actively involved. He ran a record label for a number of years and put out records by a bunch of our friends' bands. I think that's kind of how we got to know Pete in some ways. And it's uh, it's great to see him jump in. And I think he enjoys sometimes not having to be in charge of something. <laughs> he's not quite an employee but he's not quite he's not the co-president of the band uh
0: so pete talk about that a little bit more w- what has been the role of music in your life
2: well i i think i approach it from the point of view of of a fan I, I was not a great musician any kind of prodigy growing up or something it's something i really liked more than something i was good at i just kind of hung in there and stuck with it and had the opportunity to play with different people and and kind of learn along the way and again it just it occurred to me at a certain point that this is something you can really enjoy and participate in through your life, and I think the good part for me is I, you know, it was ne- I was never in a position where this is something that need to be my livelihood. So it's something I could just enjoy for what it was, and and so I I never went through some kind of cycle of being cynical about it or being disappointed in some way. I mean, everything I've been able to do and the opportunities I've been given is is all just been. Again, just kind of like frosting on the cake for me. It's all been r- really fun. And it's, uh, you know, Ben talked a little bit about the different things I've done related to music over the years. But like, for example, I've been on the board at KEXP and that's, that's been really interesting and gratifying. So I think for what I do here at work, it's a really nice uh, counterbalance. It has nothing to do with what I do at work, um, but it, it's, a, it's a great creative outlet that allows me to spend time with people I like.
0: And so now your group that's trying to bring the Sonics back to Seattle to a Soto Arena is also trying to shape just one small corner of the music industry, the music scene here in Seattle, by offering to renovate Key Arena as well into uh, an outdoor amphitheater and an indoor theater
2: of two smaller sizes. What are your thoughts or feelings about that proposal? Well, it's really a reaction to trying to find some solutions to perhaps some of the criticism about the Soto Arena, because what became pretty clear and is increasingly clear is that you know, it's not like this standalone issue where we have some property in the Soto area, we can build a stadium, and here you go. I mean, the fact is, Key Arena exists, City owns this stuff, they've got to come up with a solution for it. If it's not going to be pro sports, or you know, what's it going to be, they they obviously are interested in a solution that solves for all their issues, right? The one thing that's been inspiring, one of many things been inspiring about working with Chris Hansen is the guy's all about solutions, and he's thinking about things, and so okay, I mean, maybe there's an opportunity for the city to make best use of uh, the key arena situation given the limitations that site has. And uh, what if we're able to subdivide the space know, preserve the the roof and all that stuff, the historic landmark, and and have a vital thing happening there in sales center that makes money, but it's really more around the arts and more around, more around music. And then we can let uh, uh, the sports happen in the stadium district where it's all plan for that and it's not going to create the same kind of burden on the community relative to traffic and some of those other issues so it, it was kind of an elegant solution problem is it just i don't think it fit neatly into the way the city viewed it perhaps but again i it's someone it came up the other day someone was asking about it, said you know i think it's kind of bs that at the 11th hour you guys came in with the solution for key arena but, i mean the reason we didn't come up with that earlier is that's that wasn't something we were trying to solve for we were trying to figure out how to build a sports arena and attract an NBA basketball team. That's the whole genesis of this. But when it became clear that it was entangled with a lot of other issues, then, okay, well, here's an alternative. Maybe this can work. And so I guess all we've really been looking for is an opportunity to let those alternatives to be vetted in an objective process so that the community really knows what they're getting and what the choices are. And we, you know, we think we have a really good alternative here. What started as a reaction is now
0: an idea of what Key Arena could be Ben, uh, you've got a long history of performing and being connected to the music and the arts here in Seattle. What's your reaction or what are your thoughts to the proposal to change it into a smaller music venues? Um,
3: I guess I should start by saying that I, I was very excited when I saw this initial proposal, the architectural drawing. So um, I was one of the people that helped start the Seattle Music Commission and was the, chair, the inaugural chair of the Music Commission. Ever since the Sonics left, there have been a lot of discussions about what that space could be. At one point, the film community was doing a big push to potentially turn that into a soundstage, you know, to support that industry. Any of the solutions that were put forward or ideas, some were elegant, some less so, but none of them were funded. So the city had this asset that has to be taken care of because of its historic landmark status and all of that stuff. So when this came out, this handsome proposal, I mean, I think that, you know, the Hanson Group has been in good faith working on this for six plus years. So if you'd ask Chris when he first and Pete and um, his brother Eric and Wally Walker and those people, when they came to the table six years ago with this idea, they weren't like, let's build a arena in Soto and a music venue in Seattle. This was the sort of thing I mean, it's almost as if like if you were bidding on a house and you made an offer and somebody made a counter offer that was more attractive, but you still wanted that house. This was a way of them trying to increase or sweeten the pot to serve multiple things here. And because the biggest feedback they got uh, back about this was, well, what do we do with Key Arena? If you build that thing, what do we do with Key Arena? And so I just felt this was a very eloquent solution. It Culturally fits in with all of the tenants that are currently at the Seattle Center. It dovetails with KXP, with the Vera Project, with SIF, with the opera, with the um, uh, the ballet, with Mopop, with the Chihuly Museum. It really would create a campus that that is an arts hub for the community and would be kind of our equivalent of Lincoln Center for the West Coast. That and that the 6,000 people coming to see a concert is far less disruptive than 18,000 people coming to uh, into that community, um, 80 days a year or something, if they get NBA and NHL. And I think, um, the community that the sizing of the venues, the 6,000 and 3,500 or 3,000, um, are really forward thinking and where the concert business is going, because the amount of artists that can sell 22,000 seats are going to, you're going to see that dwindle, um, you know, as the Rolling Stones and the the Who and U2 and all these bands age out of it. There aren't necessarily the new generation of people that are doing that kind of business, whereas there's a lot that can do 6,000 consistently.
2: What do you think that proposal would mean to music lovers? I'm glad you framed it that way because, you know, again, this thing's only going to work if it satisfies the interests of the community. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot has changed just since the Sonics were even here. I mean, it's grown a lot. And, uh, and the music uh, Industries changed a ton, you know, to Ben's point there. So I think it just, it creates more options of where to be able to consume live music. And right now it's a pretty unsatisfactory experience to, you know, put a show into a, something like a key arena that you can get you know, 15, 16, 17, 18,000 people. And yet you're only going to sell 6,000 tickets. I mean, it's, you know, it just doesn't feel great to have that stuff roped off or curtained off however they do it. Um, it's always a better situation to kind of fill up a room. And, um, you know, again, we're not in the music business f- from that point of view, but I think just as a consumer of this stuff and some w- goes and watch shows, I-, I could just tell you personally, it's a lot more appealing to me to want to go see a show in the right size venue for that artist and rather than in some place where it's not set up well for it, like the WAMU Theater. I mean, it's not a good experience to listen to music or to go to Key Arena when the band really can't fill the place up. And, you know, I mean, for me, as, as time's gone on, I, I, I tend to get more and more attracted to, to some of the smaller things. And, uh, and the quality, what you can do with a venue that's kind of music-specific, what you can get out of that, I think obviously makes for a great customer experience.
0: And what about artists? What do you think uh, artists trying to become the next Macklemore or the next uh, Pearl Jam, if you want to take a few years back, what do you think that... Key Arena remodel into two different music venues would mean to the artists and the music scene here.
3: Well, I think that as live music has become crucial, one of the only revenue streams left, live performance left for artists, that to uh, be able to tour and to play in venues that are that are accentuate the experience. It's a good customer experience. The sound is good. The sight lines are good. The experience of getting in and out of the venue are good. Uh, can only help artists under the Oakview proposal right now. You know, for an eighteen thousand seat. Uh, key arena that would be sports and music focus. We have three artists currently in town that could do that kind of business. You know, potentially Pearl Jam you mentioned, Dave Matthews Band if you consider him to be local, spends about half his year here, and Macklemore, or at least right now. I mean, and so whereas at the three thousand six thousand level, I could probably name fifteen or twenty artists that could do that kind of business. The other thing is that we don't have any place to view to really uh, of size to enjoy music outdoors here in Seattle at this point. After the pier closed, that's gone away. So you have to drive out to Marymoor to the Chateau-Saint-Michel or White River or any of these places. So to have something center city where you could have an outdoor music experience would be incredibly uh, popular for artists.
0: In terms of the community at large, what do you think this could
3: mean to, to them? Well, this whole process feels eerily reminiscent to me of when the discussions uh of the Seattle Commons came up in the '90s, and I don't know you, you probably you were not here at that time, but the discussion was as South Lake Union prior to being developed. Paul Allen and Vulcan proposed putting a public park that went from Denny Street all the way down to South Lake Union uh, as a public good, and the development around it. And the, a lot of the pushback from the community was, "Well, that's light industrial space. You know, you're going to be getting rid of jobs, all this sort of stuff." And so everything that people worried about happened anyway except there's no park providing a public good down in South Lake Union at this point. And I feel that many of the push, the concerns and pushback that have happened around the SOTO site uh, for the proposed Hansen Arena is the exact same thing. People are saying, the, you know the port or the retail you're getting with this stuff. This, Seattle, uh, over a thousand people a week are moving to Seattle. The census that's been going on for the last three years. Many people are thinking about the city as it is today and not the way it's going to be five years, 10 years, 25 years, 50 years from now. That space, we're like Manhattan. We've got water on two sides. There's only so much land, and that land is going to be developed one way or another. And so I think it's important when these opportunities for infrastructure and public good come along that we embrace them because it's a lot harder to do something after something larger has happened there than when it's still a sort of uh, open field as to what could go on.
0: Pete, this process keeps evolving. There's lots of twists and turns. And most recently, the Seattle City Council has, a committee has at least moved to push the OVG Memorandum of Understanding uh, onto a full
2: council vote. How do all these twists and turns change your thinking? Part of it makes me feel like I wish we could rewind the tape and get our story out there in a better way. Because it really seems like when you can look at all the facts objectively about this there's a lot of advantages to the solution that Chris has put forth, both relative to professional sports, how it salvages the situation with the Kirin and all all the things that we've been talking about. Um, but, you know, time becomes an issue there, and there's there's a lot of special interests to address. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess I just am always a believer that the best ideas end up prevailing over time. And, um, you know, I think with the way that information is out there now, easily through the internet you can you can get the message out there so there is a grassroots opportunity I think for people to understand more clearly what the alternatives are what the choices are and then let the chips fall where they may I think that's always been Chris's thing it's like you know we just want to see a team here if that's a better solution that's fine I I don't think we believe that is a better solution um, and not just for reasons of uh, where exactly it's located but there's a there's a bunch of financial issues that, that go along with this, that I think if, if most people knew it, uh, it would shape their opinion perhaps differently, but it's a really loaded topic. I mean, I think there's a lot of people here that just feel like, well, why would you do anything for sports in any regards? I mean, it's just, there seems to be more important things and, and I, we get that. So we've tried to package this, that's not just about sports, it's really about the community and that gets back to our group. I mean, our group, is a Seattle-centric group. You know, we're not some corporation from out of town that's just trying to make a business deal. We live here, and if this thing was terrible, you know, we're going to bear the brunt of that criticism, not some, you know, faceless corporation or something. These are real people that you know, Chris Hansen and Wally Walker, my brother and I, and Russell Wilson. I mean, you know, and we live here, so I, I think that that should be given some. Uh, consideration, um, there's no interest in our part to create something that's going to be controversial and terrible. I mean, I was telling a story the other day. I mean, our, our family, my family used to own the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, we lived through the times where when Jim Zorn got traded, customers cut up their credit cards and picketed our store. I mean, you know, it was a big part of the reason why my dad and his cousins decided to sell the Seahawk team. It wasn't worth it. I mean, we live here. We have this business. If you do anything controversial on the sports thing, it's not worth it. Um, so that kind of stuff's really fresh in my mind. I mean, I, I want to be a catalyst for good things to happen in the community. We like it here. We want these things to work and we want to, pr- you know, present good alternatives. I think, you know, our our goal along was, is to be transparent, is to partner with people in constructive ways, not to be defensive about these things and pr- put forward the best darn solution we can. I just want to add on to what Pete's saying
3: from a local standpoint as well is that, one of the things that we've discussed is not just what's the best deal for for basketball or hockey or music. It's what does this project put back into the community as well. And um, from the Soto Arena side, just the pure amount of revenue that's driven by tax dollars, property tax, all these things is a lot of money that would go back into the general fund that can deal with some of these serious issues that we're facing right now in terms of transportation, homelessness, housing, all of those things. And so it just feels to me that there's been such a rush to judgment on the council's side, just looking for what's the most, the quickest solution as to one what's the most uh, eloquent. And um, I think that if for some reason the OVG thing does move forward, that time is going to treat, um, the Hanson group kindly. And when people see how this really pencils out for the people of Seattle
0: with all the roadblocks that has been
2: set before your group, I have to ask, when do you quit? When do you give up? Chris is not a guy that's, uh, easily gives up. So I don't know. I mean, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I don't think the process has fully been played out yet, even though <laughs> there's been times where it's felt kind of dire, uh, I don't know. I mean, we don't want to do anything that's gonna be an impediment or a problem or controversial for people. That was never what this is about. So, you know, if if it all turns out that this is what the citizens of Seattle prefer is the Oakview Group's proposal, then you know, we'll we'll go with that. And and I've heard Chris say it. I mean, if, if they can get a team there, I mean we'll probably be the first people to buy courtside seats. I mean, and we you know, just kinda of wanna see a basketball team. That'd be great. Uh so I, I guess there's a lot of ways to, to look at these things cynically, um, and I, that's happening in, in all corners. But again, our, our goal is just to be transparent about this, what the motivations are. And look, if it's when it's time to quit, I guess we'll all know that. I don't think that time is today, but you know we'll see. The, the process will continue to play out. And if nothing else, uh, maybe it'll be a, a, a good reflection of how our democracy should work in a city like this when, when big things like this come up. There's a great opportunity to, to work through that process. The other
3: thing to keep in mind, too, is that a memorandum of understanding is a very broad strokes document. So they're, they're agreeing to some very general deal points. The next phase is that between the Oakview Group and the city, they have to get in there and really quantify everything and put it into a legal document. And because you can come to broad agreement in one level doesn't mean that when you get into the minutia that you still have agreement. So I think that this process is far from over in that sense that until they can get a finalized document that both sides agree on, there's still uh, opportunity to be had. And I think that Chris has said publicly that he's not interested in doing something with the land and until there's a NBA team back in Seattle.
2: So any concluding thoughts? Well, I just appreciate that, you know, you've had a, an interest in, in hearing what we had to say about this and, um, Again, I, any vehicle that we can have to tell our story and get it out there and allow people to decide for themselves is is appreciated. And again, I'm curious to see how the whole democratic process uh, plays itself out. But no, look, we're we're appreciative for the opportunity. And again, if it if it turns out that our proposal is not the one accepted by the city, then you know we'll move on and we'll continue to be uh, good community people trying to act in the best interest of the city we love.
3: I think to me. You know, Pete is a lifelong, is a native, has lived here his whole life for the most part. Uh, I've lived here since 1989. Um, I've seen the city change so much in the time that I've been here, and I know that that change is going to continue. And I think it's just really important uh, for everybody involved in this process and in our city leadership um, to be thinking about not just today but tomorrow, and that, you know. We've, uh, from what I understand, I mean, the region, we're paying the price now for for um, inactivity related to transit and things that happened in the past, and we're trying to play catch-up. And it's one of the challenges that businesses in the region face in terms of being able to get, whether, you, you know, whether it's the port or Boeing or any other people, if you're trying to get from one part of town to another part of town as part of your business, it's really tough. And so I think that with these large infrastructure products, uh, projects, it's important for us to think about what's going to serve the city the best in the long run. And in my heart of hearts, I still believe that the Soto Arena um, is the most eloquent and uh, most um, valuable option to making the city function uh, effectively while providing um, providing uh, good experiences and good outcomes uh, for the population on a whole. Pete, Ben, Ben, Pete? Thank you very much for joining me today. I
0: appreciate hearing your perspective. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Schulman or post to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. I enjoy seeing your reactions to the content of these episodes. And stay tuned for season four of the podcast, which will focus on the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. There will also be a new special episode next week as I share perspectives on the key arena proposals from two heavyweights in the music industry. One, the manager for the platinum-selling band, Lumineers. And two, the drummer for the platinum-selling artists, Presidents of the United States of America. Before we close out this episode, I have to say I've appreciated all the media attention paid to the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast, and I can't wait to bring you more episodes. Many thanks to KUOW, USA Today, King 5, the Seattle Times, and the Seattle After Party podcast for recognizing the work in Seattle Growth Podcast. And also I want to mention the music you've heard in this episode is from guests Ben London and Pete Nordstrom's band, Stag. For more info on how to hear their music, check out www.themightystag.com. That's www.themightystag.com. Until next time, I am Jeff Schulman. And I thank you for listening to Seattle Growth Podcast.
1: There's not enough sunshine in the world. I'm the big Tessler.
2: On your jacket, on your back pocket. I'm the big Tessler. Not you up.